Krishna. Uh, today is the appearance day of Bhaktivinoda Thakur. And uh, so I thought it would be nice to glorify him on his appearance day. I'm here in Los Angeles and I'm going to uh, I'm going to uh, play on the keyboard here and sing the song to Bhaktivinoda Thakur. And then I will explain it or translate it.
translate that song to Bhaktino Thakur. Thank you all for watching. The song begins, Namo Bhakti Vinodaya. First of all, Bhakti Vinoda. Vinoda in Sanskrit means like a pastime or pleasure. So one who takes pleasure in devotion to Krishna, one whose pastime, one whose joy in life is loving service to Krishna is called Bhakti Vinoda. So uh, the prayer begins, Namo, I bow to Bhaktivinodaya, unto Bhaktivinoda, Namo Bhaktivinodaya, Satchirananda Namine, who is named, who's, who is called Satchirananda, meaning he is Sat, he's, he has realized eternal life, Chit, with full spiritual knowledge, Ananda, and spiritual bliss, Satchirananda, the three qualities of the soul. And Goda Shakti Sarupaya, he is like the uh, personification. He embodies, you could say literally, he embodies uh, Goda Shakti, the power of Lord Chaitanya. Lord Chaitanya came uh, to save this world, and Bhaktivinoda Thakur embodies, is the personification of the power of Lord Chaitanya, Goda Shakti Swarupa, Goda Shakti Swarupaya, and Rupa Nuga Varayate, he is the best, Vara. Vara in Sanskrit literally means a choice, like a boon, like in the Damodar prayer, Varang Deva Moksang Moksavading Va, Varam, a boon or a choice. So just like in English, choice, can be what you choose, but it also means something which is excellent because you choose the best of something. So because you choose what is best, so to say something is choice means that it's excellent. And it's the same in Sanskrit. 
So he, Bhakti Matakur is Rupanuga Vara. vara. He's the excellent, or, or he's the best of the Anuga, the followers of Rupa Goswami. So, of course, we are known as Rupanuga uh, because Anu means follow and Ga means go. So one who goes after or follows, that's Anuga. So we are Rupa Anugas. We are followers of Rupa Goswami, the chief of the six Goswami. So among the followers of Rupa Goswami, Bhakti Thakur, is glorified as vada, varaya, unto, te. And the last word here is te, which means unto you. So it's it's a personal prayer or it's a personal glorification where by singing this song we are directly addressing Bhakti Vino Tankur. Namo Bhakti Vino Daya. I bow, uh, I bow unto Bhakti Vinoda, Satchitananda Namine, who is named Satchitananda, eternal, blissful, and full of uh, knowledge, and Goda Shakti Sarupaya, who embodies the power of Lord Chaitanya, and Rupanuga Varaya, unto Bhakti Nod, who is the best of the followers of Rupa Goswami, Te, unto you. So if you know Spanish or Portuguese or Italian, you will know that Te means unto you. So it's the same in Sanskrit. Goda Shakti Sarupaya Rupanuga Varaya Te. So a few words about Bhaktivino Thakur. Uh, he really, he really began the whole idea of Krishna West. I hope that some people won't want to kill me for saying this, but it's actually true. I mean, obviously he didn't use that word, but it's Bhaktivino Thakur who first realized that Lord Chaitanya's movement must be taken to the Western world. It, and, and it not only just transported there, but Krishna consciousness must be presented in a way that Western people can appreciate. And if we look at the, at the life of Bhakti Thakur, he made just innumerable adjustments. I mean, the fact that he was the first Vaishnavacharya to preach and teach in a modern Western language. I mean, this may seem, we don't think about these things, but before Bhakti Thakur, no Vaishnavacharya had ever explained Krishna consciousness in a Western language. Bhakti Thakur was the first person to do that. And he didn't just speak in, you know, in a Western language, but he also culturally spoke in a Western language. He, um, he was very aware of what was going on. If, if you look at the, the writings and the teachings of Bhakti Yanod, he actually was, he was very educated and he kept up. He was very much in touch with all of the intellectual uh, currents, all the intellectual developments of his time. He knew about these things and he kept up with them and he, he entered into the discussion that was going on uh, between the British and the Europeans and the native Indians. It's one of the most fascinating periods intellectually that I've ever come across in human history, uh, the 19th century when Bhakti Thakur was active because the British ruled India, but it wasn't a totalitarian rule. I mean, the, the, the Indians had freedom of religion and they had intellectual freedom. And that was the situation in England. In that sense, England was, despite its colonial 
situation in other ways it was a liberal western country where there was free debate and there was free it's not that because that because they ruled india therefore they just you know they they forced everyone to become christian it wasn't like that there was intellectual debate theological debate and um and indian intellectuals like bhakti you know Thakur, were giving arguments uh, in favor of their own culture, their own Vedic culture. And there were very lively, fascinating discussions going on. There were liberal theologians in India. There were, it's like Prabhupada went to Scottish Church's college. Oh, there's Tarani. So, um, so it's a fascinating period. Bhaktivinoda Thakur was a member of a group called the Bhadralok. Bhadralok kind of means in Sanskrit like good society. If you look at, in fact, it may be a translation of that. If you look at eight, uh, 19th century English literature, sort of respectable people, ladies and gentlemen, people who are educated and who speak properly, they're called good society. And so it's, it's kind of a translation of that English term, good society, bhadraloka, good society. And, and this especially referred to young uh, Bengalis because... Uh, the center of the British Empire at that time was in, had been at least in Bengal, eventually it was shifted to Delhi. But I mean, but Bengal was originally the center of the British colony in India. And uh, there was, it was the center of, in a sense, Indian intellectuality because in contact with the British and debate with the British and in, 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 in this, um, by the influence of, of English universities which were built in West Bengal. And uh, not simply fanatical preachers that went to convert them, but they were actually uh, intellectually sophisticated Christian preachers who were you know, coming from Oxford or Cambridge, intellectually sophisticated people who were making uh, impressive arguments in favor of Western civilization. And of course, many Indians appreciated this, about you know, appreciated some of it, but at the same time, there was a resistance movement. There was a, um, among Indian intellectuals, this was not a political resistance. It hadn't come so much to that yet. It was an intellectual resistance, but not merely resistance. It wasn't, it wasn't a demonizing of the West. It wasn't just a categorical rejection of the West. It was saying, yeah, there are a lot of good things coming from the West and we really like these universities. We like the scientific method. It's not, the scientific method is not Christian. It's just the scientific method. It's being very objective, rigorous. And, and the idea that you have to make logical arguments in favor of your position, that's something which uh, Indian intellectuals quote-unquote, could relate to because they had their own powerful history of schools of logic called Nyaya, logic, and then Navanyaya, uh, the new logic. There was actually a renaissance of schools of logic around the time of Lord Chaitanya, and one of the exponents of this Navanyaya, this new logic, was none other than Sarvabhoma Bhattacharya. So Lord Chaitanya, in his discussions with Sarvabhoma, they were, and, and Navadweep itself, I mean, Navadweep was an intellectual center. It was one of the centers of this new logic school. 
So intellectually, it was a very, very rigorous, demanding, and sophisticated environment. We see that in the debate over what would be called um, kavya, or poetics, poetic conventions in Lord Chaitanya's uh, debate with the Keshav Kashmiri Pandit. If you look at that debate, of course, they're debating uh, poetics, in Sanskrit called kavya, and rules of composition, rules of proper composition. But it's very sophisticated, very sophisticated discussion. So whether it was in logic or in uh, poetics or theology, you have the great Vedanta tradition. Among the educated classes in India, there was some very, very impressive intellectual activity going on, and Bhaktivinoda Thakur was in the middle of all this. And it was that whole uh, intellectual apparatus, that whole, you could say, intellectual industry that was in India that was brought to bear, not only against, but uh, was brought into dialogue with the best Western scholars and intellectuals that were coming from Oxford and Cambridge and so on, and other European universities. So that was all going on in the time of Bhaktivinoda Thakur. And he appreciates a lot of Western writers and thinkers. He's not a he's not a West basher. He's not like, you know, the West is Maya and Western universities are Maya. That's not Bhaktivinoda Thakur. That's not him at all. He likes it. He appreciates it. He writes poetry in English. He uh, he sees a lot of good in the West, but he's saying that. Um, but we have something fantastic here which is Lord Chaitanya's movement and teachings, and if Lord Chaitanya's movement is somehow brought into cooperation with, into a type of intellectual and cultural and even theological or spiritual alliance with the best of Western culture, then we will get a civilization that's worthy to guide the world. So Bhaktivinoda Thakur was deeply and, and enthusiastically engaged with the West. And uh, he's always been a great inspiration to me. When I first started visiting the, uh, the first Hare Krishna temple I ever went to uh, was the Los Angeles temple before the present temple in Watsika. It was a temple they had on La Cienega Boulevard, not too far away. And um, that's the first temple I visited. And I was a 20-year-old uh male, which means that I was, you know, clinically insane, 20-year-old male. But, so I, I remember when I first went to the temple, I, um, the devotees in those days, was very interesting, that was the Hare Krishna movement in 1969. And so they had this big Persian rug or Indian rug in the temple room, and there was an altar, and during the kirtan, the devotees would circumambulate, they would go around the perimeter of the temple room, inside, inside the temple room, they would go around the perimeter of the temple room and they would be meditating on all the paintings of Krishna on the walls. And we said so we would just go around and around and and then of course when we got to the front we would go by the altar. And I remember the first and I didn't know what an altar was. I mean I had I didn't even have the word altar in my I don't know, conceptual dictionary. I mean I just like, what's an altar? So, but we would go past the altar, and the first thing that really caught my attention on the altar that really struck me was the picture of Bhaktivinoda Thakur. 
And it was one of those experiences we all have where, is that picture looking at me? You know, so you look at the deity, you look at a picture of Krishna or the Acharyas, and are they looking at me? Did they just smile at me? And so I actually, I had one of those experiences where I really connected with Bhaktivinoda Thakur. And the more I learn about him, the more I love him, and the more I see just what a super person and acharya he is. So Bhaktivinoda Thakur, he was so bright. I mean, he wrote serious poetry, not just like, I mean, everyone just writes some blah, blah, blah and calls it poetry. But Bhaktivinoda Thakur wrote serious poetry, poetry in three languages, namely Bengali, Sanskrit, and English. So writing serious poetry in three languages means you have to be, you have to be pretty bright. So Bhaktivinoda Thakur started, he really started the modern Hare Krishna movement. Because everything that comes before Bhaktivinoda Thakur is not what you call modern, it's traditional. It's just sort of traditional Indian culture, the way it had been for thousands of years. It wasn't about, I mean, there wasn't really like what you call an institution or any type of modern organization. There was no concept that the West even existed, although it did. I mean, the West has existed for a long time, but there was no... There was no concept of an international society for Krishna, for Krishna consciousness. And there was no, I mean, if you look at Drain Lord Chaitanya's time and then all the way up to Bhaktivinoda Thakur, there really is no dialogue with the West. There's no communication with the West. Uh, and now, of course, Lord Chaitanya, he, Lord Chaitanya certainly was open to dialogue. For example, he not only, Lord Chaitanya not only dialogued and even debated with other traditions within, you could say, Hindu or Vedic India, such as the uh, Prakashananda, the Mayavadi impersonalists, and, and, and uh, of course, Sarvama Bhattacharya, and even talks to a Buddhist. He talks to Muslims. So Lord Chaitanya is talking to all kinds of people in India at that time, whether they're Muslims or Buddhists or Mayavadis or, you know, whatever they are, he's talking to them. They're talking to each other. But in India at that time, during Lord Chaitanya's time, there are no Westerners, really. Actually, during Lord Chaitanya's time, the first Westerners, just toward the end of Lord Chaitanya's life, the first, on Earth, the first Westerners are landing far away from Lord Chaitanya in the southwestern part of India, in Goa. The Portuguese are coming. And the Portuguese are not really what you'd call fantastic dialogue partners because the Portuguese are, it's interesting, if you look at Europe, Portugal is like the last stop all the way to the West. And so, but the Renaissance had not yet gotten to Portugal. Even though the Portuguese Vasco da Gama, even though they came in, in the 1500s, uh, they were still back in the Middle Ages. Portugal was very deeply in, you could say, the Middle Ages. And the only, you could say, Renaissance thing about them is they learned how to build ships and compasses and sail around the world. So that was pretty Renaissance and modern. But, but their religious attitudes were very much medieval and fanatical. In fact, uh, there's a story that in, in the history books that when the, when the Portuguese first landed, not exactly in Goa, but in that general area of southwest India, and they found a little mandir, and they thought it was a they thought it was a church to the Virgin Mary. The reason they thought that is because Europe was so ignorant back then. You know, it was still it, the Renaissance was going on, but still there was so much ignorance 
that Europe, including the Pope, uh, believed, everyone in Europe believed that India was a Christian nation. Because there was a legend that one of the apostles had gone to India, and so naturally, this is called hagiography, we have these exaggerated mythological stories about saints. And so the word on the street in Europe was that because this was a direct apostle of Jesus, he had all kinds of superpowers, and he basically converted all of India. So India was a Christian nation. And therefore, when Vasco da Gama and his men arrived on the southwest coast and found this little Durga or Shakti temple, they thought, wow, Virgin Mary. So they went there and started worshiping. Eventually, they, they found out this is not the temple of Virgin Mary, so they... They did the proper Christian thing and just started, you know, killing everybody. But, but it's interesting. So, so, but apart from that, when when you get some far western sort of medieval fanatical Europeans landing on the on on the opposite side of India, the opposite side, Columbus, of course, was trying to get to Gordadesh. He was trying to get to the east coast of India where Lord Chaitanya was. He just kind of, uh, you know, ran into the western hemisphere. But anyway, it's Bhaktivinoda Thakur. It's Bhaktivinoda Thakur who's the first follower of Lord Chaitanya. And of course, he's one of the greatest followers of Lord Chaitanya to actually speak a Western language, to speak to Western people, to speak their cultural language, to educate himself and learn all about how Western people think and what their theology is, what their philosophy is. Bhakti Vinod was really, really completely educated. He knew exactly what was going on among Western intellectuals, their history, and so on. And he wrote poetry in their language. He preached to them. He sent a book to McGill University for, I'm not sure exactly why he chose that school, but I'm sure there was a reason. So Bhakti Thakur, he really, Bhakti Thakur is the founding Acharya of Western preaching, of, of Lord Chaitanya's Western mission. It begins with Bhaktivinoda Thakur. And therefore, uh, he's absolutely one of my great heroes in life. And um, so I will sing one, uh, another time or two the song to him and then I'll end. I'm here in LA. Oh, uh-huh. 
Prabhupada Kijai, Bhakti Vino Takur Kijai, and see you soon. <laughs>